Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now we'll start the show as we always do uh, with a review of the business stories uh, making uh, the newspapers and indeed online. I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Samantha McCochran. She's the business editor of the Sunday Independent and also by Stephen O'Leary, uh, the founder of Alitico. You're both very welcome to the programme. Um, Stephen, we might start with you um, at the front page of Samantha's uh, newspaper there. The Irish Independent is telling us that three supermarkets are to cut the price of milk. And this is against the backdrop of fairly serious food inflation. Is this a PR stunt or what is it? Because the farmers won't be happy about it, I can tell you that. And probably rightly so. Yeah, and look, I think in a story like this, where you've got multiple different um, suppliers in a a, quite a long supply chain, there's always going to be people, I guess, who are are a little bit unhappy. But as consumers, this is a good news story. You can't get away from it, really. I mean, it is a single product um, and it's not a massive drop. But given that all we've seen over the last two or three years has been steady increases in the cost of certain products and it's these staples, right? Everyone buys milk or the vast majority of the Irish public buy milk and so yeah how many people don't know how much a, a litre of milk costs well they, uh, they don't and I suppose this is where you need journalists to kind of step in and do some of the work and thankfully in the in the papers we're reviewing today some of them have done that and so you know putting that 10 cent in context is probably one of the key things and Connor Pope does a really good job of this uh, in, in one of the papers today when he talks about the uh, typical Irish household uses 8 litres of milk each week and the annual cost at today's prices is 478 euros. Yeah. So it's not insignificant. And he, he does put that in comparison to 2021 when it was 312. And he takes milk and butter, two relative staples for a lot of households, and says that we now pay 230 euros more a year for those two products. I mean, that is a yeah. that, that takes that 10 cent and really puts it in context. Samantha, food inflation has been a real issue. Um, we've seen inflation come back, but... Food inflation seems to be rampant, and there's also some uh, some uh, newspaper comment and other comments. If we talk about uh, the ECB and Goldman Sachs, hardly a bastard. Uh, higher profits by corporations are driving over half the eurozone's inflation rate. Look, so, so that has to be thrown into the mix as well. Look, you know, it does give opportunities for higher margins. There's no doubt about it. Like one of the hardest things for some businesses has been the fact that there's been no inflation. So actually pushing through more price increases has been kind of harder for them. Once there's price increases in the market, it's much hard, much easier to push through increases. So there's no doubt about it that that's part of the issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're saying there that people, are, you know, might know the price of milk. I think a lot of people actually do know the price of milk now because... Uh, not just people who are on a budget. Everyone I know has been talking about prices. It was something their parents used to talk about. Now people are actually paying attention because they're actually feeling it. So well, a, a I, little bit of I always knew the price because <laughs> I was I was a big component Buyer, cost of yes. my business. So yeah. I, I I used to go and count how many litres of milk were outside opposition coffee shops and all that. So I was acutely aware of it, but, yeah. but not from a domestic perspective. But I, I think people have had to change on that front yeah. because I think, you know, maybe five euro, ten euro extra on your bill, you know, maybe you wouldn't notice. But I think this year it's been the talk of everybody and not just people who are on the edge and they're really affected by this, but people who are just saying, I just spent an extra 50 euro in the shop and how did that happen? So, look, I think 
it makes a good headline. Some of this happened recently in the UK. Some of the milk prices came down because production um, prices for milk has come down. And, and look, hopefully that will feed through to butter and cheese butter. Like you started looking at five euro nearly for butter these days. So yeah. um, hopefully that will start to well, feed I through. I, I heard uh, Tara Duggan's piece on there earlier uh, talking about the IFA. They're furious about this because they they see it as this, you know, a big headline. We're reducing the price of milk. Everything else has gone up. And it's going to be the farmers that are going to have to pay for it. Yeah, look, uh, farmers have been at the edge of, on the fo- on the coal face of milk price changes all through, for, for history, uh, all, all through the milk industry has since it's been in existence. So look, that is part of it. Look, I think that the farmers have been talking about they've had a very good year last year because of milk prices going up. It's going to be tougher now um, as milk prices come down because the margins will get squeezed again. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll watch this space because uh, a lot happening. Stephen, now. Uh, a uh, two-page uh, piece in the Irish Mail today around uh, spending 2.4 billion to fix housing, and I, I, I don't ever want to trivialise the complexity of that is the housing problem. Uh, but some of the figures, as indicated in this article, are quite simple. They are, and I think this is an excellent piece of analysis based on research from Amoric Research. Um, and essentially, they, they asked a thousand members of the public how they distribute a 10 billion euro surplus. So it's a very accessible question in terms of a round number. Where would you put it? What would you do with it? And I, I guess in a way, some of this is, is no surprise. So you've got housing, education and health absolutely top of the bill in terms of where people would expect the money to go. But I think when you dig a little bit deeper into this, actually, there are two interesting things. One is the difference in how that split looks like based on party affiliation, gender, those other demographics, yeah. uh, even age. But what it comes back to is that really money doesn't seem to be the issue here. Yeah. So there are two key things that come out um, uh, through the article in terms of this, and it is particular, it's capacity within the sector to deliver on this. So do we have enough people to actually build the necessary housing stock that's required? And it would appear yeah. we don't. <clears throat> and also there is a long, long backlog from a planning point of view that is absolutely holding up an awful lot of development too. So there are, yes, money is an issue, but with the massive surpluses that we're seeing at the moment, it seems like the government is bringing lots of money forward, but can they spend it? That's the yeah. other thing. Uh, what did you make of it, Samantha? If we look at, <clears throat> well, like, Coupled in, in, in amidst the two-page spread is that we've hit 12,000 people uh, been accessing emergency accommodation. That's the highest level ever recorded. So, you know, that's a disturbing figure um, in the context of a complex problem, which is housing. We also have, you know, the number, a piece by Craig Hughes here, uh, analysing the numbers. But, you know, we need 50,000 houses, not 33 you know, the number seems to be shifting and does it account for the 80,000 Ukrainians that we've taken into 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 the country? So it, it's complex, but the numbers do, they do tell us a lot. Yeah, I mean, the Craig Hughes piece is interesting in that it's asking really, I suppose, are we being ambitious enough? Um, as you say, we've had the... Um the, 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 the th- tens of thousands of Ukrainians come um, to our to our shores. We've had, uh, you know, census census updates showing us that we've a lot more people in the country that we thought we had, and um, you know, our, our, the ambitions of sort of uh, thirty 
3,000 on average houses a year is sort of paling into comparison to some of those big picture numbers and you sort of talking about in that piece you know 50,000 numbers is where we're really at but as um, as, as Stephen's saying there uh, you know c- the capacity seems to be an issue so can they build more you know are their ambitions in line with what maybe they can achieve and is that the right way to come about it but the problem there you know then is is money being spent you know we heard that some of the money hasn't been spent that has yeah. been allocated you have to ask, are we confident that they can deliver on their um, what they, their ambitions? And if there are bigger ambitions, will they have any hope of achieving those? So I know, I think it's obviously playing in the minds of politicians at the moment. Uh, election is coming up. This is absolutely still on their back. It's going to be on their back for the right and up until polling day. What has been the success story with housing? Not very yeah. much. It, it, Not no, very much. And uh, it, 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 you're right. Uh, as the next election room... Uh, looms forward uh, you can see a lot of, and this this is where we need to be concerned that money if there is surplus that it gets spent in the right way that it doesn't get wasted I mean this, uh, is, the, this is the absolutely key thing and I think when we're judging our politicians and our political system and our parties I think you know people can put any number of euro numbers out there billions, tens of billions, etc. It's about the actual number of new units we're seeing, the families that are stepping into them, the actual accommodation that's being provided. I think that's what voters are going to want. They're going to want to see are more people in houses than there were this time last week, this time last month, this time last year. That's the progress that needs to be there. Uh, Samantha, business story, field the Kingspan intending to maintain our their Dublin listing on the stock exchange, which is probably good news, good news for the Irish stock exchange. Uh, but it appears there are some jitters in London yeah. uh, around their stock market. Yes, yeah, so so when it emerged a few weeks ago that CRH and Flutter were looking to the US, you know, there was a lot of chat about how that would uh, fall, fall in Dublin. But actually... At the same time, there were several articles and reports in the in, the, in in London about how the London Stock Exchange was going to fare. And this is another blow for them now. Kingspan going to maintain its Dublin listing, but not its London listing. So they've actually been doing lots to try and sort of save the London Exchange. Uh, they've been relaxing the rules, trying to lure more companies. But uh, they're just saying Brexit has been, a, you know, a very serious blow for the, the market yeah. there. There just isn't the trading levels that, you know, would have been there. So now a big problem for them really is trying to maintain that fantastic reputation the city had for so long. It seemed to have a stranglehold on all things financial and now uh, it's actually just sort of suffering there. It's had several blows and they're worried about more. Well I think as well you know the cost of of maintaining a listing on multiple exchanges is quite significant and it isn't a surprise to me that companies would look at this and say are we getting value for money here if we're not trading shares. And look the world is becoming increasingly globalised you know technology has made everything very easy to trade internationally so as you say like like a lot of stuff is moving uh, towards New York and you know it's hard to see some of the sort of listings in Europe maybe staying uh, standalone listings or exchanges in the future we're seeing just sort of consolidation I guess on that front uh, what, what do you make of it Stephen uh, CRH um, announcing its departure from London as well uh, you know this is the it, it is a worry, is it not, uh, that Kingspan, um, like these are big companies with big international, uh, ex- big international trades on stock exchange. Yeah, now look, there, there's probably two parts to this, right? So there's the boost for Dublin. In fact, that, you know, London is what's being looked at here as opposed to Dublin. And we know that the Dublin Stock Exchange has been in the news um, over the last kind of couple of weeks and months in terms of speculation as to, to companies that may be leaving. So this is good 
from an Irish point of view, but it's extremely worrying from a London point of view. Mm. And I think it's the percentages that are cited here, which would worry me too. Like people sometimes say, what's the tangible impact of Brexit? Can we actually measure sort of what happened? And they talk about the difference in the trade and their shares in London. Pre-Brexit, 10% of their trading happened in London. Now it's less than 1%. Mm. I mean, that's an incredible yeah. drop. And if less than 1% is happening there... And you're talking about a big number. Huge yeah. number. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to become irrelevant. You... Like, that's, that's, that's what's happening there for some stocks anyway. Yeah. Um, interesting piece on Irish business and the change uh, in the menswear business. Working from home relegates business suits uh, to fashion uh, victims. A good piece by John Burns. Uh, talks to many uh, uh, male fashion retailers, uh, places like Fruin and Aylward in Dunleary, where I've been a customer for many years. It's a place I enjoy. And I actually, myself, have seen the change in that shop. Uh, we, 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 we see um, Richard Farrell here from the company. I know Martin out there as well. But they, they have changed to reflect the casual nature I suppose, of how we all dress now. Samantha, what's your take on this? Yeah, look, it's great to see they're adapting and finding, uh, you know, plenty of business with their new stock. But yeah, look, it, uh, COVID totally accelerated that kind of cool, more laid back uh, approach in, in the office, if you're in the office and not everyone, <laughs> lots of people are able to wear probably jumpers and tracksuits still at home. But yeah, look, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, women's fashion has been so much more flexible for the last few decades. You know, women in the, in the office can wear a lot of different kind of options, whereas men were still in that uniform yeah. of a suit. I mean, I think it's interesting that you do see people are sort of still trying to navigate it and at certain events, you know, maybe somebody kind of gets it wrong. You do see that sometimes someone turns up in a suit and it's all sort of tech, tech, tech casual cool gear and then maybe some awards events, someone's arrived with the open shirt and they're kind of look a little bit out of place. So it's one that's interesting to navigate, but great to see the retailers adapting and, um, you know, that's 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 what they need to do to, to, to thrive into the future. Stephen, you're not a fellow I know I, I associate with a pinstripe suit. And a, a pocket chain in your waistcoat, but uh, no. But oh. it, 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 this was a really interesting article, and Paddy Sheary is someone I went to um, in advance of my wedding, um, and got fitted for a suit with. And he, he sells great shirts as well. Yeah, really? and and I was back into him at the start of this year as well. So there's, you know, yes, my day to day doesn't involve one, but you know, he's quoted in this piece, and he talks about the fact that. Excuse me, it's not about multiple suits now. It's about having one suit that's very versatile that you yeah. can use for multiple occasions. And even from a sustainability point of view, this is really important. The idea of having a suit that maybe sits in a closet for, you know, 11 months of the year, that's not the way we want to be. We want to have something that we can use for weddings, confirmations, important office moments, lots of different things. Yeah, and again, the shift that uh, some of these businesses have made towards that wedding market that they, they've they geared themselves towards it because that's the only place really suits were selling. There is another standout statistic here though that one of the tailors talks about that pre-pandemic 40% of their business uh, was business suits. During the pandemic that dropped to 1% but post-pandemic it's gone up to less than 5%. Yeah. I mean an incredible view of where that market has gone. Yeah and mm. I think I, I think it's uh uh, Richard Farrell and Fruin and Aylward is hoping that it's changing in London he says it might that people are starting to formalise again and it might just happen here Well you do wonder there is a bit of a, some companies a shift bit a bit back to the office so maybe there will be a little bit of a swing the pendulum might go a little bit that way but uh, some people will be reluctant Yeah 
Um, a, a piece in today's Irish Examiner, Stephen, uh, billionaire brothers uh, build gaming empire. This is a business I didn't know much about, but uh, they were headquartered here in Dublin. Uh, two brothers, uh, but they've built a substantial business. Yeah, these are these are a significant player, third largest publisher of mobile games in the world, Playrix. Um, and you know, I'm sure some listeners will have played some of their well-known titles, Township and Gardenscapes. There's a few interesting things about this. Bootstrapped from the yeah. start, so no external investment. So uh, the the brothers have got a significant shareholding in this exceptionally successful business. And as a result, their net worth is an estimated $11 billion. And I think what's going to be interesting here is the focus of the story is on their family office. So now they have this money. The next decision is, well, what do we do with it? And, and really the crux here of the story is that they've opened a new office in London for that uh, family office. They're trying to um, recruit people into it. And I suppose the question that budding entrepreneurs will probably have is, are they going to start spending and investing that money in new businesses into the future? So, Matt, I'll just move on to the firms that have repaid uh, just 73 million of 2 billion warehouse tax debt. Uh, it's a piece by John Mulligan in your own paper. It is interesting that, you know, we talked, we've, there's a lot of talk about the surplus from corporation tax. I would suggest that this 2 billion of warehouse tax debt, a good portion of that is probably not going to be recoverable. Yeah, I think the realisation is dawning, or if it hasn't dawned already on, on revenue in the Exchequer, that that uh, is looking more and more likely. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's one thing to put something on the long finger, but you have to assume that sort of post-COVID, everything will be rosy. But of course, companies have run into lots of other issues like cost of, of energy and other problems. So the problem is, uh, will you... Uh, a lot of companies collapse if they have to pay the debt and will there be a wave of you know uh, receiverships liquidations etc so that's a huge political hot potato the problem then is if lots of people have paid how would they feel about other companies then getting it wiped off their plate it could be a very uh, controversial one all right and finally Stephen uh, the AI doctor that gives you better advice than a GP I believe the bedside manner from the robot is much nicer than their local doctor. Yeah. Some of our medical friends won't be happy to hear that. They won't, but the key thing here is there's a lot of chat about ChatGPT at the moment. Um, it's making headlines on a near daily basis. This is not about replacing doctors. That's the key thing here. It's about freeing them up to spend time on their most valuable elements of their job and maybe create automated, easy to edit correspondence to use with patients. So doctors aren't going anywhere. All right, well, listen, I'd like to thank you both uh, for a great review of the papers. Samantha McCocker, the business editor of the Sunday Independent, and Stephen O'Leary, founder of Politico. Thanks for joining me this morning. Enjoy your weekend. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.